0: You are listening to The Ecology Hour on KZYX. My name is Hannah Bird and I will be your host this evening. We might be just a little bit late to the Halloween party, but we felt that tonight was a perfect opportunity to reshare one of our favourite shows from this year with Dr. Chelsea Andreozzi, who is talking about her work on bats in various forest locations around Mendocino County. So enjoy our slightly spooky show for the evening, which will take you cruising through the redwood canopies of Mendocino County's forests and meeting some of our nocturnal inhabitants, bats. Tonight I'm going to be joined by Chelsea Andreozzi of UC Berkeley Environmental Sciences Policy and Management who has been studying the bats of redwood forests in Mendocino County and the importance of these habitats as our climate changes. Good evening and welcome to Chelsea Andreosi, um to the Ecology Hour this evening. Chelsea, we are thrilled to have you on the show. I'm really excited about tonight's show with you. And if we could just maybe start, if you would just explain to us a little bit about yourself and your research in Mendocino County.
1: Sure, thanks Hannah for having me here. Um, Let's see, I am actively finishing my PhD at the University of California Berkeley where I've been the last almost six years now. And I'm in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management where I mostly focus on ecology research. And for my dissertation research, I entirely focused on studying bats of the California coast redwood ecosystem, specifically in Mendocino and a little bit in Sonoma counties.
0: How exciting. Gosh, um, thank you for sharing that with us. Like I say, I've been really excited about having you on the show, and I think maybe our listeners will already be understanding why. Um, So I guess one of the things I'm really interested in is what got you excited about working with bats? Or perhaps you came to this from a different angle, and bats were the right species to help answer those questions.
1: Yeah, it was definitely a bit more of the latter. I never expected to find myself studying bats, let alone doing a PhD project on it. And uh, that was a kind of exciting turn in my life. But what I was uh, originally interested in and what I started working with my advisor, Dr. Dina Marylander on is trying to understand issues of California conservation planning. And I really wanted to work in a forest ecosystem. I had never been to California when she first proposed the idea of working in the California redwoods, which are obviously very iconic and very beloved both by Californians and people all over the world. And she started me on bats uh, for a number of reasons. One is that they're a really useful lens for understanding ecosystem health. Bats are really sensitive to their climate, uh, which is a big issue in California where we have a lot of concerns about the climate warming and drying and what that's gonna mean for biodiversity, including both animals and plants, as well as human communities. And so being able to study how bats are currently being affected by the microclimate of their habitat, so the very local climate that they inhabit, is a really good way of understanding patterns across the ecosystem. And bats are also a taxon of really high concern globally right now. They're threatened by a number of things, of which climate change is one, but also habitat loss and habitat disturbance, as well as a wildlife disease that's really looming um, more increasingly on the West Coast lately uh, called white-nose syndrome. It hasn't yet affected California bat populations, but there are a lot of concerns about what's going to happen once it does. And it can cause really high mortality. And that's something that's been seen since 2006 on the East Coast of North America, which has been spreading West. So for all of those reasons, it was really important to start to shine a little more light on bat ecology.
0: Yeah, I, it, it was amazing to me just taking a look through the abstract um, of your PhD to see bats in that light and to consider what an important kind of um, uh, tool they are. You know, obviously they are an incredibly important species, but how important they are for us to understand land management decisions. And I'm sure we're going to go into that a little bit more as we go through the interview If you don't mind just explaining to us a bit more as well about this white-nose syndrome, which I've heard of from various folks, Um,
1: what is it, how does it affect the bats and how is it being spread? Absolutely, and I'm gonna start that with a caveat that I do not directly study white-nose syndrome. There's a lot of other wonderful bat researchers in California and elsewhere that really specialize in this. But the understanding that I think is important for the public to know is that it's caused by a fungal pathogen um, and it is spread physically between bats. So for example, if bats are roosting in a colony together and one bat's affected by this fungal pathogen, they can rub up against another bat and spread it in the environment and it can pass between an entire colony pretty fast. And bats are highly mobile, so they're spreading um, this disease through other areas as well. And the way in which it causes mortality is that white-nose syndrome disrupts bats' winter hibernation period so that they're being aroused, they're being awakened when they normally should be in a state of torpor, uh, hibernating and conserving their resources. And so if a bat's woken up, it starts to deplete its bat reserves, uh, the reserves that are meant to get it through the entire winter. And especially if it's in an area where the bat cannot successfully forage, uh, most of the bats in California are insect eating then it can cause the bat to starve to death. Um, other bats might be affected and survive the winter and they can kind of shut, it, shut off the disease in the upcoming season. So it, it's really important to understand uh, whether a population is going to be able to do that.
0: Can you, can you explain, is it a new fungus?
1: How, how come it's becoming such an issue now or is that related to climate change? So it first emerged in New York state in 2006 and for a while, it was pretty confined to the Northeast, and there started to be a lot of fat col- colony collapses. And so people started getting really concerned, but for a while, it still was staying over on the East Coast. And then there were signs that it was spreading west into the Midwest, uh, also affecting Canada. And what was really surprising was in, I believe, 2018, when this fungal pathogen made a pretty big jump where it started to not only be detected, but affected bats being detected in Washington state. And this was actually linked to cavers. So people who recreate by going in caves are picking up things like this pathogen on their gear. And so it was understood that it it was this sort of recreation by humans that then caused this disease to jump all the way to the West Coast. And since then, I think it was 2019 when the pathogen itself was first detected in California. And there hasn't yet been any news released about affected bats, fortunately, but it's kind of seen as a little bit inevitable, unfortunately.
0: That's that's interesting to recognize that it was, that it's people that have actually carried it some of the really long distances. And then of course, bats are highly mobile as well. So at a local level, they might well be having a lot of transmission. Well, that's gonna be an interesting thing to keep um, observing. What I found interesting as you described that was, um, talking about the disruption to their hibernation or their natural yearly cycles. Um, and I'm guessing that when we're talking about the impacts of climate change, we may be seeing similar disruption to things like hibernation. Am I right in, in thinking that?
1: That's definitely a hypothesis that I've seen. Um, and I think that people are a lot of concern about because bats are so sensitive to their environment, including temperature, um, it might get aroused more as the weather is warming up. The benefit of that is they might be able to um, survive in these milder winter conditions and perhaps the insects are more active as well, that they might be able to forage better.
0: So um, one of the fantastic things about your research is, of course, that it was actually um, so many of your research sites were actually located in Mendocino County. So I would love to um, ask you a little bit more about where those sites were, if you're willing to share that information. Um, and then I'd love you to give us kind of an opening to um, who are the bats of
1: Mendocino County? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I used a very large landscape study approach for this work as specifically for my summer study, which included 20 study sites, which were primarily in Mendocino County. And one thing that was really important for me and my advisors who were designing this research was to represent the diversity of property types that make up the Coast Redwood ecosystem. So a lot of uh, the public is really familiar with the California State Parks and other uh, protected reserves, but uh, there's a really um, strong need to understand the role of working lands as well. And by that, I specifically mean lands that are managed for uh, timber production which is still an active industry uh, in Mendocino County and a lot of the North Coast. And understanding the role of these properties as well as habitat for wildlife, including bats, is really important. And especially in some ways for bats because bats are the only flying mammals. So they are regularly crossing property boundaries. And so what is going on in one property is going to affect the viability of another one as well. So you
0: were, your study sites were different. In some cases, was it private land parcels or were you on public lands?
1: Correct, it was both. So I included um, some park sites as well as some sites at the Jackson Demonstration State Forest and also some private timber company sites that generously allowed me to to do my research there for a few years, Um, as well as uh, at least one private family site and some other protected properties that were managed uh, by private entities.
0: That's fantastic. And I think it's It's so important to recognize. I mean, Mendocino County is wonderful for the diversity of landscapes that we have here. But even within that Redwood um, system that we're focusing on, you've got a lot of variety there. So um, how exciting to hear about the different sites that you've been visiting. Um, so the, the second part of that question that I'd just love to get a sense of from you is, um, I believe we have a, a fairly wide diversity of bat species that um, you can find in Mendocino County. What kinds of bats were you tending to find during your studies?
1: I found 13 species of bats uh, fairly regularly. Uh, There's 25 in California, but the Northern and Southern species have a little bit of uh, differences. And so the 13 that I found are pretty reflective of what I would see here where I'm located in the San Francisco Bay area as well. And there are a lot of uh, what's called myotis species, myotis is the genus, and these tend to be somewhat smaller bats, uh, tend to hibernate during the winter, uh, some variability, whereas I also had some species that were really notable for being migratory. And the Coast Redwood ecosystem is significant as an overwintering space for these species. And some of them might travel quite quite far, really long distances to migrate there in the winter, where the climate is much milder than where they're spending other portions of the year.
0: Chelsea, could you give me an example? I'm really interested in in some of those species, those migratory species that use Mendocino as their milder um, winter overwintering area.
1: Absolutely. There's four that are known to be migratory, uh, three of which are tree roosting. And that is the silver-haired bat, the hoary bat, and the western red bat. And then there's also the Mexican free-tailed bat, which is a species that I think a lot of urban dwellers are more familiar with as well. Um, There's a huge colony located in the Davis Sacramento area. And these species um, are all able to migrate really far and have different uh, needs in terms of their winter roosting and general ecology. Whereabouts are they migrating from typically? In terms of the exact populations we're seeing in California, it's a little unknown, but there's been some really exciting research coming out from other people lately where we're finally at a point uh, in the scientific community where we're able to put trackers on these little bats. And if you're able to then recollect your bat, um, understand a lot better about the patterns that they are doing. And there's also been some work using what's called stable isotopes. And that allows us to match the bats' uh, kind of physical biology, for example, like a fur sample, with uh, patterns across the landscape in relation to precipitation, um, and understand better using that, that a bat might be traveling as far from like Mexico and Canada together. Um.
0: Wow, that's absolutely fascinating. Um, so, again, just returning to the kind of the central thing that brought you to this study, which is how climate change is impacting our our landscapes and looking at how bats can um, provide a kind of indicator of that. Um, So what makes the coastal redwoods such important habitat for bats, especially with the climate change forecasts in mind?
1: Yeah, so the coast redwoods are fairly unique uh, in California for some of their um, milder uh, climatic conditions which is largely influenced by being along the coast. Um, it's kind of a little bit of a backwards way of saying that as well. The Coast Redwood Range historically, very historically would have extended across much more of California and so that very narrow van in which they're located now which extends from kind of the border of California and Oregon and um, to the south of Lake Monterey. Uh, this is really kind of a relic of what it once was, and they're able to survive there because of coastal effects such as associated with coastal fog. So fog rolling in off the ocean, especially during the summer, provides a really essential freshwater resource for the ecosystem. And there's been a lot of studies over the year that uh, some listeners might be familiar with of the role of fog for the trees. So it was discovered uh, by Todd Dawson and some of his collaborators that redwood trees were able to absorb and take advantage of fog water directly through their leaves, which is incredibly important for a 300 foot tall tree. And then it was later found that a lot of the other plants in this ecosystem also have that adaptation. So we knew that uh, fog water was really important for the ecosystem as a whole, but it was unknown what kind of provision it might uh, have for the wildlife within the system, the fauna. And one thing that is known is that fog water can also drip into the ecosystem and do things like buffer stream water levels. So even in just that indirect sense, it's providing a really important freshwater resource.
0: And that's important for bat species as much as it would be for other wildlife,
1: right? Correct. And some of the bats are also specializing in aquatic insects. And so you need water for those insects to be healthy as well. So
0: um, Chelsea, thank you for bringing us to this point where I think we have an understanding of what you were studying and where you were studying it. So we're in the redwoods, we're interested in um, the bats that are using those redwoods and we're interested in um, how predicted change in climate um, might impact those those, um, communities. Now, the thing I'm fascinated by is the actual logistics of how you go about doing that study because you're in these humongous trees um, and you're looking at different bat species and how they use them. And I guess some may be fairly using the lower parts of the trees or um, more accessible areas, but there might be others
1: that are way up there. So help me out. How did you manage it? Absolutely, thanks Hannah. So I should first uh, note that most of my study relied on using acoustic monitoring and so what that means is I'm able to deploy acoustic detectors that have ultrasonic microphones out at a field site and it can record those bat echolocation calls so as the bat's moving through the landscape and hunting for prey it's echolocating and these bats have different call signatures depending on the species Some are more ambiguous than others, but in a lot of cases, we can look at that call and confidently identify it to a species and figure out which species are present at the study site as well as what their activity patterns are get a count of how many calls per night, for example. Chelsea, can I just interrupt you there? I'm just, I always find this acoustic part so
0: fascinating um, and I'm learning about more and more species that they can use that. Maybe that's one of the, one of the pieces I've heard about this being used for a long time, but I'm still really interested. Um, I'm guessing it's not just you listening to recordings, Um, there is software now that can help you to identify the different sound patterns, correct?
1: There is wonderful software. It's extremely helpful for my job.
0: <laughs> of course, especially when you're talking about something that we can't hear anyway, right? Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> that's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm able to take those audio files and then I specifically use the sonobat software, which has the advantage of being designed and developed by someone that's based in Humboldt County, Joe Suzak. And as a result, it has a, re- or, um, a really good reference call library. And so what that means is I can take some field calls that I've recorded And also compare it with the reference library and sort of manually look at whether I agree with the software's auto classification as well. So did you come
0: into this with a good sense of different backcalls or is that one of the steep learning curves that have
1: come along the way? (laughs) It's a continual challenge. I'll say a lot of us who've been studying bats for years are still trying to work on some of these challenges together, because as I mentioned, some calls are very clear, it's very easy to identify them as species and others are very ambiguous. And bats also make different calls depending on whether they're in what's called a search phase where they're doing their kind of standard call pattern looking um, for insects, moving through the landscape versus when they're narrowing in on uh, some insect prey or making a social call, which has a completely different pattern and a lot more ambiguity too.
0: Sounds like you have to learn a whole language. That's amazing. Um, So these acoustic monitors that you're using, what's the range that they have? Can you be putting them down on the kind of forest floor pretty much and then managing to get recordings from way up in the top of the trees?
1: That is a great question, and that was a challenge that we immediately became concerned about when we started this research. So as I mentioned, you can have a redwood tree that's three hundred feet tall, and in some of my more mature, especially like some of the California State Park study sites, you did have canopies that were 80 meters tall. And at best, um, I could hope to maybe get a 30 meter detection range for my recording. So that meant that the upper half of that forest ecosystem as well as above treetop, wasn't going to be observed from ground level. And the way in which we decided to approach this was also implementing a canopy research part of our project where we actually put detectors up at the top of five of our study sites and using microphones that were suspended out on the tree branch, I was able to record calls from the bats up in the canopy and flying above the treetop space and compare those call records with what I was being observed on the ground as well to understand those differences.
0: Chelsea, you're sharing this information with us very calmly. (laughs) (laughs) But somehow those devices had to get up into the canopy and I'm just wondering how that part happened.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so canopy researchers uh, in the Redwoods and elsewhere use um, specific climbing techniques Uh, And there are techniques that are designed to use a single rope and really climb up the rope without damaging the tree is something that's really important, uh, especially in these mature, beautiful redwood trees that we're working in. And I was able to get some assistance by someone with a lot more experience than I do in rigging these trees. Um, And then he was able to help me to set the project up in such a way that I would continue to be able to return every month, climb up the tree, put my rope in first and pull it up the tree, climb back in, check my detector, make sure it's functional, collect the data, and change the batteries. (laughs) So you would be going out on solo visits on some of these occasions? I would bring a friend or my advisor along as field support. Someone would be at the bottom just in case something did go wrong. I definitely want to acknowledge there's a lot of risk in climbing. Uh, Something can can go wrong you definitely want to have a buddy in place if that happens but I was I was really fortunate that my field work went really smoothly.
0: I know I ran into Dr. Adina Marinlander here one day when she was going to go out with you the next day and she was really excited about it um but I think maybe uh well I I guess one thing I'm intrigued by is did you have a history of being a climber before this?
1: (laughs) No I had a little bit of a fear of heights. Um Adina actually really encouraged me to join the climbing gym here in Berkeley when I decided that this was something I wanted to do. I had a childhood dream of doing canopy research. I remember being in elementary school and learning about people doing this in the Amazon and just being really fascinated by it. But it wasn't a dream that I thought I'd actually accomplish myself. And then uh it was Adina and Todd Dawson that started suggesting it as like something we could do because the Dawson Lab was already doing a lot of canopy research. So I had to, had to get over a little bit of that fear of heights, but I actually find being at treetop a lot more calming than, for example, being on a rock wall.
0: Yeah, I, I, so I, I'm, I'm, I just find this part of your study, I mean, I, I'm keen to delve into what some of your findings are, but I just find this part fascinating. So um, what was it like that first time that you went up? You know, And also I'd love to just kind of draw you a little bit more on what does it feel like being up there? What 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 are the other things you're seeing up
1: there? For sure, yeah. So as I mentioned, I was really fortunate that I had someone with a lot more expertise than me. His name is Anthony Ambrose. Do the rigging, and so Anthony was already up in the tree the first time I went to climb up and join him to help him install my equipment, and I remember him just kind of encouraged me to like look out and enjoy it. Like it's such a beautiful perspective and. These were field sites that i had already been working on for a couple of summers and so being able to see them from a new vantage point was really special to me um, just being able to appreciate like i chose chosen all my study sites to be next to a stream system and looking at how that continued further down the line and like the changes and the vegetation patterns across the site it it really helped me to connect more i think with this ecosystem that i was working in and climbing up was always a little bit of an adventure and that sometimes I would see fun things along the way. One day I was climbing up, um, it was specifically the Angelo Coast Reserve. It's a UC reserve site. And I remember a little bat flying out of the bark crevice ahead of me. And I've been reading in the literature that yes, bats, spruce, and these mature trees, bark crevices, but to actually see it uh, really helped me, I think, again, connect with the ecology that I was studying. There was another day I was um, at the top of a tree and like a hummingbird came to visit me and I am 78 meters up in the air at this point for that particular site. And just, I neither of us were expecting each other. Other times I was up there and like a flying squirrel was shittering at me and very unhappy to see me up there. (laughs)
0: That's that's wonderful to hear those stories. I mean, I think one of the um, challenges we as humans have to deal with is that we tend to see everything in our own terms. Right. And we take notice of things that are somewhat similar to, in size to us, things that we can easily kind of relate to, um, and also things that have time scales that bit into our lifespan ideas. Um, and I love the idea that you suddenly kind of rose up above. The, uh, the, the scale of our human lives up into the canopy and we're able to see somewhere that you've got to know really well, but from a completely different perspective. Um, what a fantastic opportunity. And thank you so much for sharing some of those stories with us. Um, so how many times did you have to go up? I'm guessing that, you know, often one of the things with research is that your equipment doesn't necessarily always behave the way you would hope it would do. Um, how many times did you have to go up into the trees?
1: Good question. We had designed the study to run from October 2019 to October 2020 with a monthly visit to each of the five sites. And I'd say during the winter, things went a little less smoothly in that we had a lot of microphone failures. And so that required a more extensive revisit of Treetop to replace the microphones and get everything functional again, Uh, but still roughly on that schedule.
0: course so some of this period was was during covid as well and i know that for many research projects that caused all sorts of different challenges just for getting parts or whatever was it was your research impacted at all
1: a little bit i changed some of my plan before i had a lab work component as well that i ended up dropping and really focusing on this canopy project instead because our campus here in berkeley was closed for a lot of that um i also Had a few more challenges getting field help during that time, although Canopy Research with a buddy on the ground is great for social distancing. So, for example, that was when my advisor um, was stepping in a little bit more to be that buddy for me. And I did have a few delays in getting parts when microphones broke. And I'm so fortunate that the BAD community is so supportive because at one point I put a call out on the listservs that I needed microphones really urgently and had people I'd never met before offering to mail me theirs to borrow for my field season.
0: Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Um, You know, before we kind of move on a little bit to look at some of the results of what you were studying, I just want to spend another minute or so up in the canopy with you. Um, Because it's this, uh, you know, this this fascinating different um, experience of the Redwood system, um, and you mentioned some of the species you saw up there, but what other things might you find up in the canopy that we just don't see when we're looking up at a redwood tree from the ground?
1: Yeah, I'd say one thing I started to appreciate more was the differences between the mature and the immature trees. So as I mentioned, I had some study sites that were in these younger forests that were managed for timber production, whereas other sites included these old growth trees that might have been standing for a thousand years. and you can really appreciate the difference, for example, in like lichen growth on an older tree. Um, the way in which the canopy just had a lot more complexity to it. And again, I, I mentioned how the bats were able to roost in these crevices in the bark. And that is something that generally forms over time. So having these deep grooves is more common in the mature tree allowing it to provide more bat habitat.
0: Thank you for explaining that to us. So those, that, those mature trees with those um, more complex structures, I guess, of, of those deep grooves allow different kinds of habitat. That's awesome to hear. The time is 7.30pm and you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX. We're in conversation with PhD candidate Chelsea Andreozzi. As she describes some of her findings from her studies of bat species using the redwood forests of Mendocino. So I'd love to just get an overview overview from you at this point of um, some of the things that you felt you were managed to managing to get from your, your PhD study.
1: Absolutely. And I think the most interesting finding that occurred from that year round canopy study is that we found differences between the bats occupying the lower space and the upper space across all five of our study sites. So that included, as I mentioned, those very mature trees, as well as those much younger ones. So some of my sites, I only had the detector up say 30 so meters, it really wasn't that far from the ground relative to what I expected the detection range to be of my equipment. And yet I still found these very stark patterns and species differentiation between the lower space and the upper space. Specifically, I was finding a lot of those myota species that I mentioned um, occupying the lower level of the habitat whereas more of those migratory and tree roosting species were detected in much higher numbers above and if we'd only been studying the study site from the ground based detectors we would have missed an enormous amount of that activity and failed to understand that these species were actually inhabiting uh, this these study sites across the entire year not just during migratory seasons so conquering your fear of heights was absolutely worth it Definitely gave a different uh, perspective on some, some things, allowed us to get a little bit further in our findings. Yeah, How? what kind
0: of lessons does this um, offer to other researchers? Um, I'm guessing that this is something which is maybe recognized, but it, it makes a study harder to do, but perhaps your
1: study has shown just how important it is. I think more than anything, it was a reminder of what we don't know and what we need to take into account as being unknown. I don't think it's possible for the vast majority of people doing bad acoustic monitoring to include a canopy component to what they do. There had been one earlier study doing this in the Redwoods, and they had done two mature trees. And so a priority for me was extending that study um, to Mendocino County and to these other uh, forest maturities to understand whether their findings extended, uh, which we found that it did uh, somewhat unexpectedly because we thought there'd be much less difference between the lower and upper space and these shorter forests. But I think again, just uh, being able to say that all of this is occurring beyond our detection range. And so when someone goes out and does a survey using these standard ground-based detection methods, and they're not detecting one of these species that we know to primarily be detected further up. They really need to be aware of that caveat and manage the land with the possibility that these species are depending on it as well.
0: So that brings me nicely to um, just, I'm interested in in the findings of your research and how they may um, be of value to helping us to understand how we can manage our lands um, with both climate change in mind and with this information that you were sharing about the importance of understanding, you know, all the different layers of the forest?
1: Absolutely. Um, that's a big question. <laughs> I will say most forest managers on private land are not currently required to monitor for bats. And I think a lot of people would be surprised by how much activity is occurring On the land that they manage, um, just not even thinking about how these really elusive species might be sharing the space with them and how they might then be affected by activities. Um, So the bats are an important part of this ecosystem. They provide a really important service to humans by uh, eating insect pests and so maybe being aware of that role that they're playing in the landscape when things like chemicals are used uh, might be really important and As I mentioned, there is really increasing concern about how California bat populations are going to be doing. And so there might be a lot more need to study where these species are across the landscape in the future and protect areas that are really important for bat habitat. And that might take the form of just saving a valuable roost tree in a form that the bats can still use. So there are a lot of uh, forest practice act laws that require uh, people to keep important wildlife trees on the landscape when they're doing activities like logging. But that's really sensitive to the microclimate of their roost as well. And so, for example, if you were to cut the other trees around that roost, uh, that tree might no longer serve as roosting habitat.
0: Thank you for explaining this a little bit to us. I think that, um... So I'm, I'm interested in just exploring a little bit more this, this concept of, of like a refugia, right? A kind of an island, a space where there is um, enough in the system for that population to survive. Maybe it's just part of the year that they use it, but it, it's, it's valuable for that time. And earlier in our conversation, you did share with me that... Um, it sounded as if habitat for bats has um, decreased quite dramatically in California, especially when we look at those species that use the redwood forests. Um, so where are we now? You know, where are we now with, with? Like, I, I think maybe what I'm trying to get to is, it sounds like these redwood forests are hugely important and in some ways, are able to tolerate some of the climatic changes that we are expecting. But I'm guessing that that can't just stay forever, right? That as we see more and more changes, there will be a point at which um, it's no longer um, uh, the, the climatic condition that's going to be suitable for that redwood forest type. Um, could you share a
1: little bit more about with, uh, about us about that? Sure and then again with the caveat that that's not something that I specialize in myself and there's better people to talk on those topics but it is definitely uh, understood that there's a lot of uncertainty in the future of that ecosystem so again California as a whole it's warming and it's drying and those are not conditions that the coast redwoods are adapted for and I think that southern parts of its range might be particularly sensitive um, as those as, as conditions occur. And there's been um, a lot of speculation about what future fog patterns will be. There has been kind of contradictory findings and whether fog will be decreasing versus increasing. And I'm not sure what the current consensus on that is, but I think it's fair to say that it's still a big question mark. Um, and that would definitely impact, especially the more inland portions of the Fish Redwood land- Range.
0: Thank you for um, giving me I am aware that I often ask folks on the Ecology Hour to share information about things that maybe isn't the the main area of their research, but I really appreciate your your knowledge on all of these things. Um, You know, many of our listeners tonight may um, live, have access to own property that has redwood forest types on it. Um, Is there anything you'd like to share with those folks who perhaps um, do have decisions that um, might impact these kinds of systems. Um, anything that you'd like to be sharing with our our listeners this evening that might help our bat species?
1: I think, again, just being aware of how much is going on beyond our human notice. And so if you have the opportunity to get a bat acoustic monitor out in your landscape and understand what you actually have, then that's a really wonderful way to understand these really important species better. But if that's not the case, then I know that even just putting my detector in my urban Berkeley backyard, I'm still detecting a lot of bat species overhead sharing this space with us. And again, that's just an important thing to be aware of when we make forest management decisions. For example, anything that requires chemicals, I might enter the insects and enter the bats and just traveling up this very sensitive ecosystem. So for folks who do find that kind of thing
0: interesting, um, I'm aware that, for example, with uh, some of the research projects on the site that I work at, the Hopland Research and Extension Center, um, they use some really fantastic trail cameras that are certainly without out, outside of my price range. Um, but I have managed to find a cheaper version that is great fun to use in the backyard with my kids. Is there a similar kind of scale um, with acoustic monitors? Is it something that individuals might find that they could purchase and and have enough understanding of
1: to get a sense of which bats are using their backyard? That's a great question. Uh, I was actually just doing a bat outreach event last weekend in which we took some uh, active acoustic monitors out that can plug right into your phone and use a little software that will automatically ID the species with some degree of confidence. And that is a very user-friendly device, um, and I think they have a more recreational version of that that's maybe 150 dollars or so, uh, which not nothing, but is significantly less than these passive acoustic detectors that I was deploying. And there definitely are some companies out there that are trying to make those passive acoustic detector devices a lot more affordable as well, but it comes with the challenge of then being able to process your data and. I mentioned there's software out there but it requires a little bit of a learning curve as well to be able to do that especially with confidence.
0: Well Chelsea I'm already thinking about um, asking you to join me for a BAT event (laughs) at Hopland Research and Extension Center. It's a lot of fun, I'd be happy to. (laughs) (laughs) But um, you know one other thing I just wanted to as we as we wind up a little bit here tonight um, I wanted to just recognize that bats do they are this just species of great fascination for us right and it sounds like um, going out and doing educational events is something that you've had to do. Um, What what misconceptions do you find most commonly that that we have about bats and bat species?
1: Yeah when I tell someone that I study bats I get one of two reactions they're either thrilled and psyched or they're like you know what I'm scared of bats uh, we have a long human history of perceiving bats as a threat, for some very uh, understandable reasons. Bats can carry rabies. Uh, people who are not vaccinated for that definitely should not be handling a bat if it enters your home. And on that point as well, bats do, and the especially, especially uh, when there's a deficit of other better roosting space, they will occupy a house and maybe roost up in your attic when you don't want them to. And so they can definitely be perceived as a pest in that sense. And I think more generally because they are these elusive nocturnal creatures they are just so poorly understood that I think that can cause a lot of public misconception about them and their role in our world. (laughs)
0: So um,
1: Chelsea, I, I know you have to get back to your
0: research. I'd love to just um, finish off tonight by asking a couple of things. Um, one thing is, I'd, I'd love to hear what are you what are you hoping on doing next? Congratulations, because I <laughs> believe that you're ending, you're finishing up your PhD, which is absolutely fantastic. Well done. Um, and then I'm fascinated to hear what you might be going on to next, um, and whether you're going to stay with this connection with bats, or whether um, your larger study questions will be leading you in other directions.
1: Thanks, Hannah. I actually recently started a postdoc with the University of California, Davis, where I'm working with the USDA California Climate Hub. And these sort of topics that I'm assisting with now are very focused on California statewide issues of wildfire and forest resilience in both the ecological and social forms that that takes. Um, so as I mentioned, we're really concerned about California conservation planning and what it means to have this change in climate that's also affecting the wildfire regimes that are playing out in some really devastating ways in our California communities. Um, so I'm pretty excited to start to contribute a little bit more to that work and kind of expand some of my research approaches as well. But that's also why I'm hoping to keep some of that research up on the side and still happy to do outreach events
0: so uh, that, that makes me think, I, I do have a couple of other questions. I promise I won't keep you too much longer tonight. But um, one of those is I'm, I'm fascinated about how fire might impact um, bat colonies. I know that during a prescribed burn on our site at the Hopland Research and Extension Center, we had a bat box and as the prescribed burn was going through and the smoke came up, suddenly we saw them all fly out, just the middle of the day, right? But um, obviously that was uh, had they were safe that box was fine it was a prescribed burn but it obviously had an impact on their behavior right there and then um and prescribed burns in my mind are a fantastic thing this is certainly not me giving them a bad name but i am interested in how our
1: wildfires are
0: impacting um colonies as well
1: that's a great question and there has been some research and it's becoming uh more and more popular to do so uh, looking at exactly that question of what is the impact of wildfires on bats and bat's habitat. In some ways, uh, wildfires can actually increase that activity on a landscape because of the insects that then start to emerge post these burns. But I know there's a lot of differences in kind of the timeline of what's immediately occurring at a burn versus a little bit later versus longer in the future. And I think that's a little less well understood, but obviously um, prescribed burns, those sort of low intensity, very controlled burns are really important for managing these landscapes that in many cases have not received fire in the way that it naturally would have occurred without human intervention. Um, So I think understanding, again, the influence of wildfire on biodiversity as a whole, including a lot of different species of animals, is really important interesting and important.
0: Yeah, it makes me think that, oh yeah, it makes me think that obviously the, the uh, kind of complexity of some of the older trees that you were mentioning in the redwoods, um, fire burning through a habitat um, might add to that complexity, right? Of some of those structures that might actually be of greater value then
1: for bats using those areas. Great point. So when you're walking through a mature forest, you'll in many cases see these fire scars uh, that are generally referred to as basal hollows. And so what happens is over the centuries of fire occurring on a landscape, these trees begin uh, to hollow out in these cavity areas, which creates uh, what sometimes is re- referred to as like a goose pen. Like humans historically use these areas uh, to take shelter, to store animals, um, They also create really great bat roost. And so I've definitely identified some of that roosting habitat. And I find that the species that are associated with more mature habitat are the ones that require those roosting conditions. And most of the bat species that I mentioned that there are 13 uh, in the fish Redwood ecosystem, most of those actually do take advantage of those basal hollows, those cavities. There are only, Let's see, two that are foliage roosting specifically, um, and maybe some others that prefer other habitat, but most of them will take advantage of that excellent roosting habitat provided by those fire-scarred areas.
0: I feel like I've just begun a whole other show that we could spend another hour just talking about (laughs) wildfire and um, bat populations as well. But Chelsea, I know you have other things to do, and I'm excited about following up with you in the future um, for for the evening tonight. I just want to say a huge thank you Anna, we look forward to speaking to you the next time on the Ecology Hour. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much to Chelsea Andreozzi for that fascinating study and conversation. After our interview, Chelsea followed up with me to underscore two important points, which I'd like to finish tonight's show with. There's a lot of bat activity across the entire Coast Redwood ecosystem, including on properties that are primarily managed for timber production, where bat species presence and activity has historically been understudied. We included study sites that reflected the diversity of management types that make up the Coast Redwood ecosystem, including both state parks and other protected areas as well as working forests that are managed primarily for timber. We detected 12 of the 13 bat species on all property types and our models showed only a few species had a significant association with mature habitat. This demonstrated the value of working forests, including relatively immature and disturbed forest sites for bat foraging habitat. This was an important finding because a lot of prior bat research in the Coast Redwood ecosystem had been focused on mature, protected forests. Protecting mature sites might still be essential for conserving bat roosting habitat, but it's important for working forest land managers to understand that bats are present and affected by their forest management activities. And if we care about protecting bats, Then we need to think of how this wide-moving and boundary-crossing animal is using the entire landscape. Second point that Chelsea would like to share with us. Some bat species are active in the winter along the California coast and this may make them more resilient to the wildlife disease white-nose syndrome than hibernating populations. Western bats are increasingly threatened by the wildlife disease called white-nose syndrome. California bats do not yet appear to be affected by the disease, but the fungal pathogen which carries the disease was detected in California in 2019, so it's expected to be inevitable that California bats will be affected in time. White-nose syndrome affects bats by disrupting their nocturnal winter hibernation so that they awake when they should be hibernating and lose fat reserves. However, if bats are normally active in the winter, then they might be more resilient to the disease than other populations. We studied bat winter activity in the coast redwoods and found that certain species were commonly detected during the winter, suggesting that bats along the California coast may be more active during the winter than inland populations of the same species of bats. The winter temperature threshold at which which bats were commonly detected was found to vary greatly between species though suggesting different overwintering behaviours between species. For example, some hibernate while others stay active even at cold temperatures. That being said, much more research will need to be done for scientists and others who care about bat conservation to understand how bats will be affected by white-nose syndrome. Well, just to finish off this evening's programme, I want to welcome Chloe Wanaselia, who is joining us from the Grizzly Core program. Um, and Chloe, I just want to say a really big welcome this evening. It's great to have you here on the Ecology Hour. Thank you, Hannah. It's great to be here. <laughs> Chloe, let's get started by just understanding a bit. I, I said that you're with the Grizzly Core program, and I'm guessing most people don't know what that program is. Could you tell us a little bit about who you're currently working for?
2: Yeah, totally. It's I, I have sort of Two or three different um, titles, which is definitely can be very confusing Um, and sort of a a mouthful when I try to explain. But it's really exciting. It's a really cool program. Um, So it's an AmeriCorps position. um, And so it's run, you know, similar sort of idea to uh, a lot of other AmeriCorps programs. You can have them be a few months or an entire year. Um, It's considered a service year in my case. Um, and so it's run out of the uh, it's run out of UC Berkeley, um, and that's why it's called Grizzly Core. It doesn't actually have anything to do with grizzly bears, which makes a lot of people kind of confused. <laughs> um, it was started three years ago um, in order to implement strategies and build capacity around um, people and organizations and initiatives. Um, trying to build climate resilience in California. And so the program focuses on forest and uh, regenerative agri-food systems um, in that capacity building. And so we have 35 fellows across the state who are partnered with various organizations that are working on fuel rejection, Uh, prescribed fire, all of these different things about forest health and management, and then also with food systems, regenerative grazing, regenerative agriculture. And it's really exciting because um, we're funded through AmeriCorps, but we get placed with organizations um, not working directly for AmeriCorps, and so we get experiences with organizations doing really amazing work that wouldn't necessarily have the funds themselves to hire us on. And so we're learning a huge amount, um, but we're also providing a huge amount of resources to these other organizations.
0: Yeah. And as speaking as somebody who works for one of the organizations here at the Hopland Research and Extension Center, who's benefited from a Grizzly Call Fellow for two years now, um, it does make a huge difference to these organizations. I honestly don't know how we could manage um, without that support. And we're, we're so excited now with Chloe on board um, and the ways that Chloe's going to be involved with the work here. Um, Chloe, would you mind just, I know this is what, this is your third week, right? Yes. Very, still very early days. <laughs> but um, at this point, are you getting a taste, a sense of what the year holds for you and the kinds of projects you're gonna be involved with?
2: Totally, yeah, yeah. I think I'm starting to get a sense of the options out there Um, In the beginning, it was sort of, I sort of kept feeling like I wanted to ask people what I was supposed to be doing, and then they kept asking me, well, what are you doing? And it was, uh, (laughs) it's big, it's it's transitioned from um, overwhelming to really exciting, (laughs) uh, which is great. Um, So yeah, I think overall, I'll be helping you a lot with education and outreach, Um, so a lot of educating and engaging with youth and some adults around land-based learning, mostly sort of centered on this beautiful, beautiful site that we have. Um, and then I'll also be doing uh, a lot of support around land management, um, sort of less on the education outreach workshop side and and more on the um, Actual planning and implementation. So, for example, we have a carbon farm plan um, that was written uh, or supported. The writing was supported by our last grizzly core fellow, um, and she she's awesome. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> very grateful for her legacy. Um, and I'm going to be helping with the implementation. So, figuring out what we do first for that. We also have. Probably cattle coming in in the spring, so I'm helping with the infrastructure around that and how to make that process as ecologically sustainable and beneficial as possible. Um, There are a lot of really exciting sort of land management things with that, so I'll be going out into the field and collecting data and um, probably putting up cages for oaks, for oak regeneration. So some field work, but then also some sort of emailing people and writing proposals and. doing some GIS mapping. So I'm really excited about all of it.
0: That's a lot. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> it's a busy year. Yeah, my whole family, every time somebody asks me what I'm doing, I, I, I'm i working on making it shorter, but
0: <laughs> no, no, there's no I'm not trying to figure
2: it out. Yeah. <laughs> to shorten it beyond that
0: so chloe i am interested and one of the things that um you'll be doing as as part of the grizzly core program is hosting next month's ecology hour which we're really excited about so i'm excited to see who you're going to bring Mm -hmm. um for a conversation or Mm -hmm. a number of conversations Mm -hmm. to the program um but first of all i really wanted just to get to know you in this show um what was it that drew you to this program
2: or to this kind of area of work Totally. Yeah, I think um, I was really fortunate to grow up in a family and community of environmentalists. Both of my parents have been really passionate about that for their whole lives. And I grew up in Berkeley, too. So there is this sort of consciousness um, that I was brought up with that really, um, really started my passion for this sort of work. Also, uh, I got to spend a lot of time outside. I was really fortunate with that from an early age. So it Um, really made this sort of work feel very personal Um, and I want that to be the case for as many other people as possible. I want to provide access to a relationship with land um, and facilitate that with as many people as possible. So that's sort of the grounding inspiration for it Um, and as I've understood more of the, um, the threats of climate change and the implications of it as i've gotten older and as things have worsened in our lifetimes um i'm very aware of the fact that as a a 23 year old i'm going to be experiencing a huge amount of that over the course of my life and so i've been thinking in the past few years about how i will best situate myself um in this very uncertain future and so i want to learn uh skills that will be relevant in any sort of future context that i find myself in
0: thank you so much for listening to the ecology hour this evening and we look forward to speaking with you again next month